Amen. So turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Our text this morning is verses 27 to 30. How many of you know the book or have read the book, The Warmth of Other Sons? It's a wonderful book on the history of the Great Migration. When African Americans between 1940 to 1970 or so, a little bit earlier actually, just sort of stood up and left the South and went north and went west to start new lives in that, in that era. One of the ways the book is just wonderful is she just does a great job of not just telling you the historical facts around the Great Migration, but she laces in these stories that give us a sense of life at the time. I'm, I'm struck by one story she tells about a local church, actually. There's a doctor in the community. He is uh, well-regarded He's, as an educated man, as an educator, who's also a leader in the church. Uh, and there's this struggle for power and control of the church that breaks out between this doctor and another person in the congregation. They have pretty different visions and ideas about the church. And the church goes through this struggle in leadership, and, and people start to begin to, to divide along the lines of, of who they follow. Got to the point where one group tries to, to bar the leader of the other group, and they, the other group returns to favor. Then they have this, this Sunday morning gathering where people come to church that morning. And the doctor is prepared to teach and to preach, but a woman in the church um, bars the pulpit, for, you know, for blocks the pulpit, for, forbids him from teaching and preaching. An argument breaks out. An argument turns into a scuffle. A scuffle turns into an all-out brawl. One guy took a couple licks and didn't like it, so he went home, got his gun, came back and began shooting. There's a casualty and a couple of people shot. I mean, it was just a hot mess. It was also in the newspaper. The question is, what is the reputation of a church like that? And praise God, those churches aren't on every corner, all right? But when God's people are fighting and in conflict, when God's people are struggling for power rather than serving one another, when God's people are opposing each other rather than opposing Satan, What's the reputation of such a church? I'm going to put the question this way. Is that church living a life worthy of the gospel? I think the answer is probably obvious there. So let me put the question in the positive. What does it look like for a church to live a life worthy of the gospel? Well, the answer might be surprising. It takes an entire church to live worthy of the gospel. It takes unity and cooperation and striving, especially when the church is in conflict. That's the burden of our text this morning, Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. And this morning, I want to give you seven C's of a gospel-worthy church. Seven C's of a gospel-worthy church. I'm a preacher. you got to like do alliteration, right? So seven C words here to describe a gospel-worthy church that come from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Look with me at the text this morning. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you 
that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I have. Father, we pray that you would help us to mine this word for all of its riches and grant us faith in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing I want to say about a, a church that lives in a manner worthy of the gospel is that it's a church with a, a collective orientation. It's a church with a collective orientation. The, the first, as you remember from our first sermon on this, this, um, on this letter, Philippians is organized in sort of six sections where Paul alternates between a, a personal update and a pastoral exhortation. He tells them a little bit about how he's doing, and then he exhorts them based upon that to sort of go on in the faith. And verse 26 begins the, the second of the pastoral exhortations uh, in this letter. And the main idea of verse 26 is that we ought to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Uh, that phrase there, live in a manner worthy of the gospel, live in a manner there, has in mind the idea of citizenship. So you heard the translation that our sister quoted for. It's the idea that we are citizens of the gospel. We are gospel people. We, we owe our lives and our allegiances, as Paul says in Philippians 3, 21, not to this world, but, but to the kingdom of heaven. And so to live in a manner worthy of the gospel is to live like people who pay their taxes and submit to the authorities of the kingdom of God. That's the basic idea there, that we are citizens of another world. Now, the first thing we need to note about that citizenship and that manner of living worthy of the gospel is, again, that it's collective in orientation. Paul keeps addressing the entire church in Philippi. From chapter 1, verse 1, where he says there, to all the saints in Christ at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, to verse 4, when he says, I, I make my prayers for all of you, in every prayer of mine, for all of you. Chapter 1, verse 6, he who began a good work in you, plural, the whole church, will bring it to completion. Verse 7, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you, for you are all partakers with me of grace. Chapter 1, verse 8, Paul there, bearing his emotion, I yearn for you all with the affections of Christ. I want you to know, brothers, verse 12. Verse 25, I know I will remain and continue with you all. So from the beginning, right up to verse 26, 27, 28, throughout this text, Paul is concerned not with sort of individualism. He's concerned with the entire church. So a life worthy of the gospel considers the entire church, not just our individual lives. Christians are individuals, but we are not individualists. To live worthy of the gospel, we must be collectivists. We must have a sense that we are connected to every other Christian, and we must recognize that every other Christian has something to do with how well we live for the gospel. Dr. King, in a different context, would 
so that our lives are inextricably tied together in a garment of destiny. That there's a mutuality, that what happens to one happens to other. I think that is best understood not in terms of the, the polis, the state, the, the civic world. That's best understood in terms of the church, God's people. We're inextricably tied together. That's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Remember that wonderful passage where Paul talks about we are the body of Christ? 1 Corinthians 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Skip down to verse 18. Right in the middle there. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. Isn't that marvelous? That God himself has sovereignly placed you in the body of his son according to his own design. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We don't understand Christianity if we do not understand this about the Christian life. That we are not lone rangers. We are members of God's family, members of his household, citizens of his kingdom. We are a people called out for God. How do we apply this? Well, the first thing, this collectivity, this unity, the body of Christ, it should lead us to a healthy practice of church membership. Church membership is a biblical way of reminding ourselves that we need each other. And without each other, we're not living and cannot live a life worthy of the gospel. A life worthy of the gospel is bigger than one individual. It takes the entire church. And there's a second application here. Then we ought to express this collectivity. We ought to show this collectivity in things like fellowship and hospitality and discipleship. So the encouragements that are coming to the congregation now to do things like Fellowship Friday or to gather and, and to take outings. Now, I'm not going hiking with you, but I like the spirit of it. I like the spirit of it, all right? If you got some group sedentary activities, I'm your dude, all right? But the idea of being together, practicing hospitality, love for the other, love for the stranger, the idea of fellowshipping, sharing spiritually together, that creates a culture of meaningful relationship in the body of Christ. And then we want to add to that active, intentional disciple-making of one another, encouraging each other in growing in our obedience to Christ and walking with Christ. You create that relational context through fellowship and hospitality. Then you create the context for spiritual investment, which we call disciple-making. All of that is an expression of this collectivity, and it deepens the sense of our collective self. And then thirdly, I'll just say this in a way of the application, each of us should be plugged into the life of the body of Christ on at least three levels. Number one, we should all be plugged into the entire church, members of it, recognizing that. In a moment, we're going to come to the Lord's table. There we're instructed to discern the body, to recognize the body of Christ and our part in it. 
We should all be making that discernment and making visible our commitment to the whole. But then as we were talking about uh, hospitality and things of that sort, we should find ways to engage in smaller group kinds of things as well, whether it's gathering with the older brothers of the church or the men of the church, gathering with the women of the church and those kinds of activities, joining a small group. There should be some smaller group expression of that larger whole as well. And thirdly, we should all be plugged into one-on-one relationships. We should all have a Barnabas who encourages us in the faith or a Paul who encourages us in the faith and a Timothy whom we encourage in the faith. So each of us should have at least two spiritually meaningful relationships with someone who is intentionally helping us to grow in the faith of Christ. That's an expression of our collectivity. And apart from that, we cannot live in a manner worthy of the gospel. So the key question is not whether my personal life is worthy, but whether our whole church is living worthy of the gospel. Which brings us to our second C, consistency or consistent. A life worthy of the gospel is a consistent life. In other words, the church should live the same God-honoring way, whether someone sees us or not. I take that from Paul's little phrase there. He says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent. He wants to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, whether or not he has his eyes on them or whether or not he's away somewhere else and hears the report. He's encouraging a church to have integrity. Someone said integrity is being the same person, whether in private or in public. That's what we're meant to have. We're meant to be the same church committed to the gospel of Christ, living for our Lord, whether we're the church that blows up and everybody knows about it, or we're the church who's laboring on in obscurity unknown to the rest of the world. I'm afraid that might be too many churches who would trade integrity for popularity, who want to be seen as gospel-worthy, rather than be gospel-worthy. I mean, let's borrow another phrase from Paul's letters. In Ephesians and Colossians, Paul uses this phrase that I think he coins called eye service. A church that lives in a manner worthy of the gospel doesn't practice eye service. Look with me at Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 8. Paul writes there, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ." Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. There's a parallel text there in Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. Paul writes again to bond servants, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now here's the thing about Jesus. He sees in public and he sees in secret. There's no way to do eye service with Jesus. There's no way to sort of just perform 
when his eyes are on you because his eyes are always on you. He's always taking note. He's counting the hairs of our head. He's observing our, not only our actions, but our, our thoughts and our, uh, the, the matter of our heart. And so then everything we do, we're meant to do it as unto the Lord, knowing that our reward comes from the Lord. And that ought to promote a kind of integrity, a kind of consistency in the gospel church. You see, the problem with man or eye service is that it's man-pleasing rather than God-pleasing. And if you live to please man, Galatians chapter 1, you will not please God. But if you live to please God, it doesn't really matter whether man is pleased. We live for the Lord. It's interesting that Paul addresses bond servants or slaves in both of those texts. And in Philippians chapter 1, how does he introduce himself? Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ. We belong to the Lord. And we should live for him as our master with real integrity, not with eye service. And that's how we live in a way that is worthy of the gospel. Now, here's the thing. The church family should be the one place where people are welcomed even though they're hypocrites and inconsistent. But it also should be the one place where the inconsistent and the hypocritical learn integrity. Right? So we often hear people say of the Christian churches, oh, they're full of hypocrites. Well, we must be doing it right then. Because hypocrites need to come and learn what integrity is about, right? You're not going to learn it in the boardroom. You're not going to learn it in the, in the club. You're not going to learn it in the street. That, that, the world is full of hypocrites too. The difference is we know we are. We know our weaknesses. We know our inconsistencies. And we are endeavoring by God's aid to be consistent, to be the same in public and in private because our lives are being conformed to Christ. So that means we got to be the kind of community that at the same time isn't judgmental in a sinful, self-righteous way toward those who are struggling and inconsistent or uh, not walking in a way that's manner of the Lord. But at the same time, we've got to be the kind of community that says, hey, it's okay that you're not okay, but it's not okay that you stay that way. Come, let's grow in Christ and let's grow in integrity and let's live together a life worthy of the gospel. Which leads us to a third thing, the third C. A church cannot live a consistent life and also, also has conviction. A church must be convinced of the truth of the gospel and the word of God. And they must share that same truth collectively as a, as a people. That's what I get from the phrase that I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. Paul says, whether I come and see you or whether I hear from somebody else, what I wish to hear about you is that you stand firm in one spirit. That little phrase, standing firm, brings to mind the, the ancient Roman soldiers with their shields and spears, locking shields, digging in, resisting whatever is coming against them, not giving an inch, not backing down, not, not falling away. Paul says, you, you got to dig in, church. You got to be unflinching in your commitment to the truth. You got to be unwavering in your allegiance to the gospel. You got to take your stand on the Bible and not on shifting sand. 
And this reminds us, beloved, that theology and sound doctrine, that's not just for Bible geeks. That's for everyday Christians. We can't take our stand on the truth if we don't know what the truth is. You can't defend the book if you don't know what's in the book. So if we're going to be people who stand firm, we've got to be people who are committed to the Word of God, who drink it in and take our stand with it. And such a unity, standing together firm for the truth of the gospel, that can't happen unless we're also in one spirit. Did you notice that? Standing firm in one spirit. Now the commentators, the biblical scholars, debate whether the word spirit should be lowercase, as if referring to the human spirit and attitude, or capitalized, as in referring to the Holy Spirit. The ESV uses the lowercase. The NIV uses the, the, the capital. I think there's really good reason to think that Paul here is referring not to the human spirit, although that will result, but to the Holy Spirit. Capital letter S. Think about the context. Verse 19, Paul has just referred to receiving help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, look down at verse 1. He talks about if there's any participation in the Spirit. In other words, if the church itself is communing with the Holy Spirit. Or, or let your eyes run down to Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, where there he uses that command again to stand firm. This time he says, stand firm in the Lord. So clearly, in Paul's mind, the ability to stand firm in the truth of the gospel is an ability that does not come from human strength, but comes from divine strength. And so I think what he's saying here is stand firm in the Holy Spirit, in the strength and the unity and the power that the Spirit of God gives to the people of God. Plant your feet. Root yourself. Stand strong. Particularly in a world that will assault every truth dear to the Christian. You don't blow in the wind with them. You stand stiff against the wind, and you hold your ground against the attack. What does this mean? Well, this means we, we cannot engage our warfare with the strengths and tools of the flesh. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and, and powers and, and high places and spiritual places. Our, our warfare is not carnal. Our, our warfare is spiritual, and our weapons must be spiritual. So we must wage this war the way God's word instructs. And in addition, the entire church then must be powered and guided by the Holy Spirit. It's not that we've got a few folks from Pentecostal backgrounds and they believe in the Holy Spirit and a couple of folks from Charismatic backgrounds and they believe in the Holy Spirit. And, and then you've got all these Reformed types and they intellectually believe in the Holy Spirit but functionally don't have any place for them because the other groups spook them. Come on now. The Bible presents to us the daily necessity of being filled with the Spirit, of being controlled by the Spirit and guided by the Spirit. And that's no spooky thing. It's meant to be a precious thing to us that we commune with the living God whose Spirit lives in us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Corinthians 3, don't you know that you are the temple of the living God in whom he lives by his Spirit? And there's no contradiction between being filled with the Spirit and being governed by the Word. Because it is the Holy Spirit who gives us the Word. 
holy men of old wrote the scripture as they were carried along by the Spirit. And so we want to be those kind of people who are not afraid of the Holy Spirit and not afraid of communing with the Spirit, but who also understand that's not spooky witchcraft stuff, that we do that by virtue of meeting with God in His Word, reading it prayerfully, asking the Holy Spirit to illumine our minds because Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we can't understand the Word unless the Spirit gives us understanding and asking the Spirit to give us boldness and power to witness for Him in this present dark age. That can't be a point of confusion if we're going to live worthy of the gospel. Which brings us to a fourth thing, a fourth C. We want to be cooperative. A life worthy of the gospel is collective, not individualistic. So we should expect that that collection is not tearing itself apart, but working together. So to be worthy of the gospel, members must work together. We must labor together. We must, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, we must become partners in the gospel. Notice there in verse 27, he goes on to say that with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's, that's cooperation. You get the sense that the members are deeply agreed with, with one mind, with one soul. You could translate that. And you have a picture here, at least in my mind, of the members side by side, locking arms, striving for the gospel. I was a little boy, which was a long time ago, at recess, we used to play a game called Red Rover. Anybody know that game? Yeah. You make two lines on opposite sides of the, the field or the court or whatever. And those two lines are two teams and you have to stand next to each other and hold hands or lock arms. We did it holding hands. And then you would say, one team would say to the other line, Red Rover, Red Rover, send Sasha right over. And then Sasha would have to break her line and run across to our line and try to run through our hands, right, to break the chain. And if she broke the chain, then those two people who were broken apart had to sit down, and that line got smaller, right? But if she didn't, she had to join our group, right? And so Red Rover, Red Rover, send Sasha right over. The church is playing Red Rover with the world. Says, send right on over whatever you want to send. But you're not breaking our chain. You're not coming through. We are striving together, which means we are wrestling and fighting and and pressing together so that we might defend the faith of the gospel. I know some of y'all play Red Rover right after service. (laughs) We, We are meant to strive this way, to struggle to fight vigorously. And you can't be a Christian if you have no fight. Love the way Matthew Henry put it. A man may sleep and go to hell, but he who would go to heaven must look about him and be diligent. In other words, Jesus put it this way, that the the kingdom of heaven is taken by force. We have to fight this warfare. We have to strive for the faith of the gospel. I take that to mean not only for the gospel message itself, but for the life that comes up out of the gospel. It's the only time that phrase is used in the New Testament. I think Paul is saying here, listen, lock arms, join up, click up, and strive for everything dear to the gospel, from the message itself to the manner of living, from the proclamation to the practice, from the deed to the duty, from the word to the worship. Protect the gospel as one person, with one mind and one spirit, cooperating, striving together 
for this precious treasure. A worthy church lets no one move them from the gospel or the gospel lifestyle, which raises some good questions for us. Maybe you'll think about these over lunch. Number one, what most unites us as a church? Is it the gospel or something else like culture? Number two, what do we cooperate to do as a church? Is that cooperation primarily about the proclamation of the gospel or about politics or something else? Gotta be clear about that. Number three, how good are we at working together to defend the faith of the gospel? I mean, are we individualists or are we partners? You know, it's ironic. Some of the most individualistic, lone ranger creatures I know, or I said creatures, I meant Christians. Christians, <laughs> they're creatures too, but Christians that I know, they fancy themselves apologists. They're out there all by themselves, quote unquote, defending the faith, fighting for the faith. And sometimes one wonders if they've just beaten the air. Because they seem to just be fighting at everything and fighting for nothing in particular. But here now, we are rooted in fighting for the faith of the gospel, and we do that not as lone rangers, we do that together. It's one people. Raises the fourth question Are we more focused on striving for and standing firm on other things or on the gospel? The faith of the gospel. And finally, maybe most personally, at a basic level, are we cooperative people? or difficult people, even when it comes to spreading the gospel? Are we cooperative people in spirit, seeking to be at one mind with our brothers and sisters in the body? Are we difficult, contentious, argumentative, schismatic, separatist, unsubmissive people? I trust you see which the Bible commends. An uncooperative church or a church failing to strive together for the gospel is, by definition, not living in a manner worthy of the gospel. They're like that church I told you about in the introduction. But a cooperative church striving for the gospel, well, they prove the worth of the gospel, and they prove they're worth the gospel. To be that kind of church, we need every member to lock arms and strive. And number five, C, fifth C, courageous. A worthy church is a courageous church. Notice there in verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Uh, we need to know as Christians, our Lord told us in the scriptures that he has opponents. The gospel has opponents. And so the church has opponents. And because of these opponents to the gospel and these opponents to Christ, the church, God's people, will often see persecution. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Write it down. Make it plain. Take it to the bank. This is what comes from the world as a result of living for Christ. Bad things, beloved, happen to faithful people. That's not strange. Jesus says if they persecuted him, they will persecute us. The Lord teaches us that we are not going to be treated better than the master. 
So opposition from others, whether it's small inconveniences or whether it's serious persecution, opposition from others is a normal part of the Christian life if we live for Christ. We shouldn't be surprised by it. But we also shouldn't be frightened by it. The word frightened there brings to mind the word that's used of horses in battle when horses get startled, when they get afraid and scared, and they run off. Paul says, don't be like that horse that's surprised in battle, whinnies and rears up and then runs off into the woods somewhere. Do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. Now, that's a tall order. There's another reason why I think it takes the Holy Spirit. That's a tall order. If if your pastor Brunson suddenly arrested in Turkey by government accusing you of being a CIA spy and conspiring to overthrow the government, well, that's scary. No doubt, that's frightening. Or if you're in India or other places where churches are burned and you are inside the church building when a Molotov cocktail is thrown thrown in or you come that morning to worship the Lord only to find the church in embers, and the majority of the people in your country seem to be celebrating? That's scary, beloved. But what matters most is not whether or not scary things come our way, but how we face them, how we, how we look at them. A church who lives in a manner where the gospel faces scary situations, but they do it with courage. Remember what Paul says just a few verses earlier when he says, listen, I know this is going to turn out for my deliverance, right? Because he says, you're going to help me through your prayers and the Holy Spirit uh, of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of Jesus Christ is going to help me. And he says this, he says, so that I would have full courage now as always in Christ. I, I think he means by that that their prayers are going to give him spiritual courage, even though he's facing life and death in a Roman prison. So it needs to be with us. But let's be clear. Courage is not the absolute absence of fear. Courage is what you do in the face of fear. Courage is that standing firm and going forward despite the fear. It's not the absence of fear. I've been in both situations where I have lacked and had courage. I think about Muslim evangelism. I remember uh, catching a train from Franconia Springfield down to McPherson Square to go to work when I was working in the policy world. And I'm on the platform at Franconia Springfield, the last station on that end at the time. Uh, five people on the platform. I'm down here all by myself. I got my Bible under my hand. I'm going to spend that 40 minutes on the train having my quiet time. Muslim dude comes down the escalator. Uh, he's in full regalia. He looks and sees me. Five people on the platform. The man comes all the way down the platform, standing right next to me. So we get on the train. I go to the opposite end of the train, sit in one of those seats with my back to him. Who comes up and sits right next to me? This Muslim dude says, what you reading? I said, my Bible. I, you know, I have my quiet time, that kind of thing. I, I didn't really want to be bothered, right? I, I wasn't living a matter of words of the gospel at that moment. And the man says, can I see it? So I give him my Bible. And he proceeds with my Bible to whoop my butt for 40 minutes on the way to McPherson Square. And most of the time, I'm just like shrinking back in a kind of fear of man. That's not what we're to do. 
not to be frightened in anything with our opponents. There have been times, though, where I've been able to muster courage. One of the last debates I had in the Middle East was with a young man who's Saudi Arabian in background, a Muslim apologist. And uh, it was the day before, the day of the debate. It was the day of the debate. And I'm doing some last-minute preparation. I'm listening to some radio, radio interviews he's done with Christian radio stations in the United States. And there's one program in New York where the guy is kind of going at him, and he asks him the question. says, now, do you believe, as some Muslims do, that people who convert from Islam to Christianity ought to be put to death? I think the interviewer thought that was a softball question. My man would take a sort of moderate view. He didn't blink. He said, absolutely. And the interviewer rephrased it as if he misunderstood. <laughs> And he said, no, absolutely, they should be put to death. He said, particularly if they're in a Muslim country trying to get Muslims to leave Islam to come to faith in Christ because they are hurting weak people and, and are worthy of death. Now, this is the man I'm about to stand with in about five hours. In the Middle East, a former Muslim converted to Islam. Your boy was shook. Your boy was shook. Now, it's probably 3 o'clock in the morning in the Cayman Islands at the time. I said to myself, Christy's going to have to get up. <laughs> so I call home and scared, voice cracking. I said, uh, baby, I'm scared. You're going to have to talk to me. Now, when your man call you and say he's scared, that brother's scared. <laughs> that brother's scared. This just ain't something brothers do. That brother's scared. And she said, uh, she sleep talking about what? I said, girl, just, I just need to hear your voice talk about anything. And she just talked and told me about her day for about 20 minutes or so. And we prayed and hung up. I was still scared. <laughs> Went to the debate. And the whole while I'm thinking, I'm not sure I want to sort of get into my testimony and things of that sort. And the debate's like three hours long. And, and, and I haven't shared. I've, I've debated. I've preached the gospel. I've pushed back and defended as best I could. But I haven't shared the fact that I'm a Muslim convert because I'm sitting there scared. And we're at our closing arguments. And he goes first and he comes up and he talks about the Quran. And, and then he says this. He says, um, I want to challenge you to read the Quran. You will find it beautiful and it will bless your life. And the Holy Spirit tapped me on the shoulder. Said, that's, that, that's your introduction. Go, go do what I told you to do. And with knocking knees, I said, I've read the Quran. I was a Muslim. It will do you a little good, but it will not get you into heaven. Amen. Let me tell you my story. And I remember we had another hour of Q&A, and I'm, people asking me questions. I'm, I'm looking at everybody else in the audience, man. I'm like, you know, well, what's going on out there? Yeah, I hear you, baby. No, you know, go out to the car with my good friend, Mac. He would organize it. We get in the car, and Mac's a real excited brother. He's with flashing eyes. He said, brother, that was fabulous, right? And I said, Mac, I was scared to death. And he looked at me. He says, brother, I couldn't tell. I, I could, you know. <laughs> Courage. It's not the absence of fear. It's doing what we know the Lord would have us do, even in the presence of fear. And sometimes we miss it, and sometimes we get it right by God's grace and His Spirit. So how do we apply this? Well, number one, let's pray for each other's courage. Amen. Paul asked for prayer for his courage, and 
We ought to ask for prayer for the courage of the church. You just pray that generally for ARC. Lord, wherever you scatter your people today, let them go in boldness. Let them go in courage. And when we stand together for your name, give us courage in the face of anything that's frightening. Let's pray and ask the Spirit to give us that. Number two, let's draw courage from each other. I think many of us would encourage to hear that our prayers for Pastor Bronson were answered. That he endured the suffering and we saw the Lord's deliverance in that. Uh, we want to share missionary biographies and, and, and go to the websites that are dedicated to the persecuted church or Voice of the Martyrs and, and know what the saints are going through and yet persevering through so that we might draw courage and strength for our times of trouble as well. Let's tell those stories and rejoice in God's goodness. Last two C's real quickly. Number six, clarifying. A church that lives worthy of the gospel is a church that clarifies some things. Notice there in verse 28, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. We find a similar line like that in 1 Corinthians 1.18, where Paul says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel has an aroma. It's stench in the nostrils of those who refuse it. But it is the aroma of Christ, the aroma of heaven, the incense of glory to those who are being saved. If you ever wonder why God created the church, saved the church, and left the church in the world, here's one biblical reason right here, to be a sign, to be a clear sign that those who live a life worthy of the gospel then sort of make it clear that there are only two ways to live. There are only two roads that we travel. For those who oppose the gospel and the church, the, the, the sign says you're headed to destruction. By rejecting the gospel, they reject the only Savior who can, who can rescue them from hell. But that same church standing firm for the gospel, side by side, arm in arm, striving for those who believe and are part of the church, that church is a sign of salvation, that Christ has rescued us, that Christ has made us his own. And the evidence for our being Christ is in part this experience of not giving in to fear, but taking our stand with Christ, no matter what's happening, that's frightening. So it's like the Christians and their opponents are on a two-lane highway. And they meet at the edge of the same town. And the opponents traveling into the town read a sign that says, Welcome to Destruction. But the church leaving out of that town, leading out of judgment and destruction, read a sign that says, Welcome to Salvation. Destruction and salvation are bordering towns. You've got to be on the right road. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Live the way you want to live. Go the way you want to go. You are on that wide six-lane highway headed to destruction. But narrow is the way that leads to life. Narrow, that road marked Christ, that road marked cross, that road marked repentance and faith and hoping alone in Jesus Christ. That narrow way is the way to salvation. And the scary thing is, the Bible says, few there be that find it. It's a confusing thing to be on the broad road. All the traffic is heading that way. And you think that because all the traffic is headed that way, you must be going the right way. And then you see the small line of cars going the other way, and you think, I wonder where those people are going. 
They're going to glory. They're going to heaven. And if you, you base your life on the opinion polls, if you base your life on the popularity polls, you will go the wrong way toward destruction. But if you look at this marvelous sign that God has left in the world, a ragtag collection of people who all believe in this same Jesus and who even though they suffer for this same Jesus, keep on believing, don't misread the sign. That's the sign marked life. Choose life. Forget the crowds. Turn to Christ. Follow him, the one who was crucified for your sins and resurrected for your eternal life. The reason Anacostia River Church exists is to be a sign to the world that there is a salvation from that destruction that is coming in hell. Learn to read the signs. Strikes me that some people can't tell the difference between commercials and the product. There are guys who buy cars because they saw an ad with a woman on the hood. A woman don't come with the car. There are people who would rather look at the model and imagine that they look like the model when they put on the clothes the model is wearing. I ought to leave that alone, but you, you. men too. See, I was talking about the men, see. <laughs> there were folks who would rather be waited on by the model, who knows nothing about the product, they're just a the model, than the pimply-faced high school kid in the store, who knows everything about the store, the product, and your need, because they're shopping by sight. They're wooed by what they see. And what's glittery and glamoury and, and, and what's nice is attractive to them. But the things that have freckles, the things that suffer, the things that are bruised, they have an aversion to. And in that aversion, they pull away from a bloody, crucified Savior. And they pull away from a battered, beat-up church. But that Savior and his church is the way of salvation. Amen. Don't choose the cute. Choose the saving. She was the one powerful enough to save. So, a question. For those of you who are not yet Christians, who are in your sin and facing judgment, do, do you realize which sign you're facing? Destruction is coming. It's certain. And so I want, I want to implore you, if you're here and you're, you're in your sin, you've not repented and turned to Christ, I want to implore you, stop hating the church. Stop opposing the gospel. Stop in your heart condemning and rejecting what you think is ugly. <laughs> it's a marvelous thing. God knows you think that. In, in Isaiah, when he describes the Messiah, he said, we consider him stricken and afflicted. We did not esteem him. We know Christ does not look beautiful to you. It's because you treasure your sin. We know the gospel doesn't sound like good news to you. It's because you believe every other report of what the good life is. We know this doesn't seem like a, a natural incentive to you. It's because you are dead in your sins and your trespasses. You need to be born again in order to see the beauty of Christ. You need to be born again in order to see the beauty of the church.
And to be born again, you need to call on the very God that you've been opposing. Did you notice there in verse 28 that this salvation is from God? It's not from you. It's not from me. It's from the very God you've been opposing. But that demonstrates how loving a God he is. That those who oppose him can come to him and be rescued by him. Do it today. And Christian, let me encourage you, stop criticizing the church. Be an effective part of this clear sign. Christian, praise God you are saved. Don't you still wonder at that? Is that still amazing to you? Praise God that you are a part of God's church. You are a member of his family. You are in his household. That's a marvelous thing. That's an extraordinary thing. And stop teaching your heart to despise that glory by criticizing the church, by always being dissatisfied and discontent and distressed. You're always dissing something. Listen, perhaps the worst result of a Christian member of a church habitually skipping church or not joining a church at all if they're Christians or joining and sitting on the sidelines and, and being kind of, you know, off in a distance, not really related to the body of Christ in an arm-locking way. Perhaps the worst result of that is that person takes what God intends to be a clear sign and they make it blurry for a hell-bound people. The worst thing that could ever happen is for the church to stop striving for the gospel and stop signifying heaven and hell are real and stop signifying that salvation is available. Take away that sign and people will not see the danger that they're driving toward. The one necessary institution in all the world is the local church. Remove or cover or blur the local church and you doom the world to hell. Listen, what we are a part of in ARC, what every Christian is a part of in their local church is a phenomenal, astounding, wondrous thing. We are the sign that God left in the world that there's a difference between heaven and hell and that men may be saved and we are the saved. Treasure that. Don't let nobody diminish that. Don't let nobody take that away from you. Which brings us to a final thing. Conflict. Everything we've been saying about a church living worthy of the gospel takes place most clearly, did you notice, throughout this whole text, in the midst of conflict. Verse 30, both Paul and the Philippians were experiencing conflict. He says there that they were engaged in the same conflict that they saw he had when he was in Philippi in Acts chapter 16 and that they now hear he still has. Now, consider Paul's life. Paul's like, I've gone from conflict to conflict, from jail cell to jail cell. I done left Philippi. They accused me of of trying to destroy the city. And now you're there believing in Christ, suffering the same stuff that I left. Paul was in prison with his life on the line. And there was some comparable kind of conflict going on with the Philippians as well. 
Now, why is it that Christians suffer conflict? The answer is in verse 29. Notice there. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That's an interesting word, grant. It means gift. It comes from the same word from which we get grace. So God has given you a grace gift. Your faith is a gift from God if you have it. Praise God even for your faith. But notice there's a twin gift that comes with faith. Suffering. Now we don't often think of suffering as a gift, do we? Suffering is an unwanted visitor. We don't like it. We don't want it. God is handing it to us, and we're like, no, no, you can, you can keep that. You can keep that. And notice what one commentator said about this. He says, believing in Christ caused suffering for Christ. God's grace gives both the ability to believe in Christ and the ability to suffer for Christ. In believing and suffering, Christ is the source and center of life. Think about it this way. You ask yourself the question, how can I be sure that Christ is manifesting his own life in my life and the life of my church? Answer, he is the suffering servant. You will see suffering in your life if your life is joined together with Christ's life. That's the whole argument of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that the sufferings of Christ overflow in our lives because we are united with Christ, but so also do the comforts of Christ. We live in a Christian world that's teaching us steadily that the evidence of Christ's presence in our lives is that everything is going well for us. But we have a Bible that teaches us the opposite, that the evidence that Christ is present in our lives is that we suffer with Christ. And the Bible tells us something extraordinary, that that suffering for the sake of Christ in his name. So we're not just talking about all the other kinds of ordinary suffering, but that Christian, that uniquely Christian suffering, that that suffering which we endure for Christ is a gift from God. It is grace from God. It is a kindness from God. If we are allowed to suffer for the name of Christ. Now, only serious Christians think that way. Only well-taught Christians think that way. Only Christians who know the history of the Bible and the spread of the church and the spread of the gospel understand that suffering in the name of Christ is something that we ought to rejoice in. That it's a badge of honor and a gift from God. Listen, some people are happy to hear that Jesus suffered for them. But they are not happy to suffer for Jesus in return. That attitude is so far from the New Testament, it would be unrecognizable to Paul. In the New Testament, suffering for Christ, as I said, is one of the greatest and most joyful privileges that Christians had. And here's, here's the wonder, here's where we want to end. It's that suffering for Christ that gave the church joy. We've been thinking about serious joy. And if we want our joy to be serious and deep and rigorous and and strong and robust, (laughs) it's going to have to carry us through suffering. But we'll have to look past the suffering to see the giver. We'll see God and his son 
in whose name we do suffer. And this is how the, the early Christians were taught to think. So follow along with me. Acts chapter 5, verse 41, when Peter and John had been arrested and beaten, just like Paul in Philippi, uh, and told not to preach the gospel, and they said, listen, we don't know any other name. You, you judge. It's between you and God, but we're going to preach the gospel. They leave that situation in Acts 5, 41, and this is what we read in them. Then they left the presence of the council, what? Rejoicing. That they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. <laughs> they rejoiced. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 14. Peter was there in Acts 5. Now Peter is writing to instruct all the churches in Asia about how to think about suffering. And he makes a distinction. He says, now if you suffer because you did wrong, that's on you. Don't be blaming that on Jesus. Got what you deserve. But if you suffer for following Christ and for doing what's right, this is what Peter says. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I love that verse. Peter says, you're in your suffering. It's a fiery trial. Do not be surprised. Right now rejoice because you are sharing in Christ's suffering. And then he says, now look forward. When the glory comes, you're going to rejoice some more. You're going to go from joy to joy if you will endure and suffer for Christ's sake. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed which means happy because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You don't know how you are enduring the suffering you're in. It's not because you're strong or wise. It's because if you're suffering for Christ and trusting in Christ, the spirit of God, a spirit of glory and God rests upon you. God is anointing you and keeping you and carrying you. God is delivering you and pressing you through and keeping you and treasuring you and molding you. And he is giving you the very inkling of joy that you have. And when he comes, that joy will be made full. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Beloved, your suffering is your servant. The next time suffering walks into your room, say to it, my servant, bring me my glory. Remember what the Lord Jesus says. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now what I want you to see in those three text, Acts 5, 1 Peter 4, Matthew 5, we could look at a whole bunch of other ones. What I want you to sort of land on is the logic of these texts. That our suffering is because of our fellowship with Christ. Christ is our passion. He's the one around whom we animate ourselves. We build our lives. So our suffering is an indication that we have our passion, the thing that we long for. And, and, and we look past the suffering to the reward, to the, to the glory for taking our stand with Christ, for seeing our passion fulfilled. And it's because the suffering confirms our passion and the suffering indicates reward that we rejoice. 
But you have to read your suffering that way. You can't read your suffering as something that happened out of the blue. And you can't read your suffering as Christ having failed you. And you can't read your suffering as having no purpose. Its purpose is to reveal the life of Christ in his church. And its goal is to bring us glory with Christ. Welcome your suffering if it's for Jesus' name. Welcome your suffering because it will bring you joy. God is so gracious that he makes even our suffering for Christ to be a source of serious joy. Do not be afraid to suffer for Christ. If he is your passion, then your suffering for him will bring you gladness. Suffering is not fun, but getting more of Christ and his glory is. A church that's worthy of the gospel takes its stand with Christ, suffers and strives, and receives glory. Let's pray together. Father, this morning there are any number of people in this room who are suffering various things, and that for the name of Christ. There are some in this room who are suffering for Christ in the workplace. They are ridiculed because they don't go to happy hour with their colleagues. They are ridiculed because their suggestions coming from the Bible are despised by a world that loves worldly wisdom. Ridiculed and maybe marginalized because they don't cut corners with the rest of the workplace but live honestly with integrity. So they suffer for Christ. And there's some in the room who suffer on their college campuses. They name the name of Christ and college students their own age who know no more than they know ridicule them and treat them and act as if, <laughs> act as if they're foolish. And the gospel is foolishness to the world, but to us it's the power of God. Those in the room, O oh Lord, who are suffering for Christ in their relationships. Could be a marriage, could be a relationship with a child, could be relationships between siblings. Lord Jesus, you've called them to hard things, and those things hurt. Remind all of these folks and many more that great is their reward in heaven. And there's those who are suffering because they preach the gospel. We have brothers and sisters in foreign lands who are persecuted for the very thing that we've been given attention to this morning. They're battered and bruised church, but they are your sign of destruction to those who oppose them and of salvation from you. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen the persecuted church so that, Lord, they might stand firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightening anything by their opponents. If it pleases you to send suffering, may it also please you to give us courage, to give us grace, and may it please you 
in our suffering to show to us and the world that we are worthy of the gospel. We want to be worthy because you're worth it to us. Give us joy as we persevere in pain. Give us joy in our sorrow, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.